0: Welcome to Opt In with April Jasper, relevant conversations about topics
1: important to eye care providers today.
2: MacuHealth with Micromicell, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and micromycell technology.
3: Hi, everyone. I am here with Dr. Harvey Hanlon, one of my good friends, optometrist, past AOA president. But we are not in a place you might expect. Where are we, Harvey? We are
4: actually in Cambridge, England at a conference called the bond conference, which is the brain and Acre nutrition conference.
3: It's awesome. We, I've never been here. It's a fabulous conference. John Nolan has done a, f- a really good job putting it together. And the science we're hearing is just incredible. Wouldn't you say?
4: Oh, it's, it's remarkable. We're, we're with the leading scientists in the world, both from not only the United States, but, but all of Europe and Asia. And the, the, the speakers here are amazing. And, you know, as an optometrist, we're used to hearing regular lectures and about whether it's vitreous or whether it's uh, uh, retina or whatever, we're talking about the leading science in the
3: world. Yeah, it's incredible. So we've had a day, we're moving into the next day. We actually had some fun yesterday too. We went punting.
4: Yes. Well let me tell you what punting is because I had to look it up, I had no idea. Punting basically is like being on a gondola, and uh, and it's a boat, and it goes. We were on the Cam River, or I guess that's what they call it—a river. But and we actually could see all of uh, the Cambridge University of Cambridge schools yeah. here, colleges. It was remarkable. We had a lot of Beautiful. fun. We yeah.
3: did. It was great. But you know, what's also really cool is just to see this community get together, meaning all of these uh, scientists, Harvey and I are the ones, well, I'll speak for myself, Harvey. I really don't fit in at all, but I sure love hearing them. And what we're going to give you more of as the uh, podcast goes on is more of what they've done, their research, and then how it applies to us in practice. What stands out to you so far?
4: Well, I think uh, what I've realized, and and I've been involved in this as a consultant with MacU health for a few years and having done some lectures with uh, John Nolan, uh, is the, the amazing science that's going on and what we're finding out about not only how things affect our vision, specifically different carotenoids and the combination of carotenoids, but also the effect that it has on other diseases, specifically dementia and Alzheimer's, which I'm amazed at.
3: Absolutely. I think the time is here for me. It's always been this way, but even more so now where I'm ready to really just talk to patients about prevention. I want them to know there are things they can do that will help to make a difference because everybody's been touched in some way by these diseases, whether they're eye diseases or brain diseases. And this conference brings it all together because after all, the eye is part of the brain.
4: Exactly. It's. I think what we learn over time, and, and I've been in practice for 48 years and just have retired from patient care, but... Um, I think I've learned more about the science in the last number of years, and I think as an optometrist, if we always take care of our patients based on evidence-based science and what's best for them, that's really the answer.
3: I love it. Well, you guys are going to enjoy this. We're going to have other folks come in and kind of talk about what they have done in research. These folks, they put their lives into research, and they don't do it just so they can put their name on a paper. They do it so they can make a difference for us, so I hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. Thank you, Harvey.
4: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
3: Dr. Imre Langell, thank you so much for being here with us. I'm so excited for you to bring your presentation to everyone that watches and listens to our podcast. So let's start with you telling everyone a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay. So I'm a reader in American terms. It's an associate professor at Queen's University Belfast, where we do a lot of translational research and my program is involved in the eye translational research. So I'm a basic scientist wanting to take the observations we make in the microscopes and in the bench to the bedside, and therefore we do both uh, bench work and then uh, clinical work as well.
3: Wow, so tell us, uh, your presentation was phenomenal. Tell me and all of our listeners a little bit more in a shorter period of time, about what work you've been doing and what you presented here t- this weekend.
1: So I'm particularly interested in how disease starts. Uh, as you all know, uh, problems with age-related macular degeneration or mm-hmm. Alzheimer's disease, at the moment we are trying to to treat the disease um, which is as successful as it is uh, right. currently. So going uh, a little bit more in time earlier yes. means that we would need to understand what happens earlier and that's my focus and and I bring brought together alzheimer's disease and age related macular degeneration through the extracellular deposit formation which happens in both diseases but looking at the eye and what we uh, discovered a few years ago is that these extracellular deposits which most people would would understand To be called drusen um, has a a mineral core and this mineral is calcium and phosphate containing which is your teeth and your bone so obviously something that you don't want uh, in the back of the eye and when when we started to to understand how widespread this is basically we haven't seen any deposits in the back of the eye without calcium deposition. But we also discovered uh, in a big international collaborations with, with other speakers at this conference, like Christine Curcio, that one form is particularly bad for patients with age-related macular degeneration. We call them nodules, which are made of hydroxyapatite purely. And what it does, it basically grows very relatively rapidly and destroys the, the one of the most important cells in age-related macular degeneration called retinal pigment epithelium. Right. Because once that's destroyed, the retina is directly uh, exposed to to any insults, and it also interferes with the transport. So, uh, what what was the major finding of that study is when you have these big calcified deposits that is associated with a rapid progression to end-stage disease. Mm. And what it suggests to us that stopping that developing or growing uh, or or go just a little bit earlier to stop its growth to a a much bigger size that produces so much problem, that would be very beneficial for the patients.
3: So the clinical significance, and by the way, if anyone can look up your papers and see the the images, they are incredible. That was one of the most interesting parts and I think that made it even more impactful is to actually see what you've been able able to discover. But let's go to now clinical significance. What can everybody take from what you're what you're finding and how can they apply that to seeing patients in practice?
1: So I think uh, it's a very interesting question how early we could detect these calcifications. Right. And when we take this to the, to the, to the microscope, uh, we see these calcifications appearing very early on in disease without drusum, without any damage. That suggests that if we can, can uh, visualize this early, and that would help us to identify the point when we might be able to interfere with their growth. So uh, what we are working on is developing uh, sensors that would be able to help us detect in the living eye these deposits. And and, and we are making quite good progress with with, uh, an international collaboration again. Uh, The second step will be to understand once we have it, what can we do to either stop it or at least slow down the progression right. uh, of these these deposits. So, for a clinician, if we were able to detect early, then we would be able to advise patients that this is happening, yep. because these these little calcifications, uh, if they are really what we believe is the seed, one of the seeds at least to the to the deposition, then what we can uh, uh, what we can do is visualize this much before it becomes clinically uh, uh, visible.
3: And, and what will they do? So what are you thinking right now? Well,
1: this is, this is a very important question, uh, and I wish I would have a very clear answer to that, because calcification, just like as you would expect from your bone and teeth, it's very, very difficult to, to dissolve. So once it's there, it's probably going to be harder to remove it than stopping developing. Right. Currently, we don't have fantastic therapies, but on other diseases like scleroderma or pseudosantoma elasticum or heart calcification, there are approaches where people are trying to, to use nu- actually nutritional supplements, like increasing pyrophosphate levels, which is mm-hmm. uh, an inhibitor of calcification and naturally circulating in the, in the blood. Um, there are very good efforts uh, on these rare, rare diseases to introduce these substances wow. to to slow the classification so disease.
3: You kind of talked about what you're doing next, but go ahead and tell us a little bit more. What what are you working on now, and how soon will we have some more information? How how you know we we often don't realize how much work. And let me just tell you right now. Thank you, thank you from everyone that you know, a lot of us don't have any idea how much goes into discovery and research and new treatments. So a big thank you from all of us. But also, we are impatient. We don't realize this takes time. How much time are we looking at before we start to be able to see the next step?
1: So uh, unfortunately, science is complicated because taking any treatment to a patient takes quite a, uh, a Quite the need to build up a very good uh, understanding of the um, of the biology behind. But what we are trying to do is um, we in the last few years we developed uh, cellular models that produce calcification, and that is the first step wow. to manipulate the process. Right. So we are very very excited about that, that we, we, we are able to do that uh, in a cell culture. Now we are starting to understand how to speed wow. up the process so we can interfere yes. and also how to stop uh, even the development. So this is, a, this is a major step before you can go to a, a clinical trial. Yep. But we also identified some specific animal models that produce calcification in the eye and that's, again, giving us the preclinical um, uh, opportunity to study what, how could we interfere with this process. So these are very, very important steps, but it's probably uh, a few years before we could come up with, a, uh, with an idea of, of how to interfere. However, and I think that's why this conference, for example, is so important, There are many different diseases and there are many different factors of these diseases that we can take advantage of. So being able to talk to our colleagues uh, about what they do in different diseases, how interaction between different nutrients could help, because these are the things that we can do now, advising people once we get the result is uh, if we don't need to develop new drugs because these are naturally right. available. So there, there is a bit mm-hmm. of a hope in hell. And uh, uh, one thing is absolutely important that, you know, this is a mineralization. And that means that there is calcium and phosphate that does something what they are not supposed to do. Right. But I often get the question, and that's why I'm raising this, that should we stop drinking milk? Oh boy. Or eat cheese, which have a lot of calcium, and the answer is no. Uh, this is a much more complex process, and it's it's not a single factor that we need to look for. So hopefully, uh, gradually with these mold models, we will be able to get the answer how to slow the progression, which then we can take it to clinical trials.
3: Wow. This is incredible. Thank you for sharing with us. It's so important, the work you're doing, and I love that you're willing to bring it to everyone else and help us to understand better what's coming next. We look forward to it. I know all our listeners are as impatient as I am, but we understand there's a lot that goes into it. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Mark Rourke, and we are here to talk about nutrition. So let's get started with the fact that you're an optometrist like me. We're both at this meeting together. What brought you here to the Brain and Ocular Nutrition Conference?
0: I've had an interest in nutrition for a long time. I was here at the 2018, actually was able to present about macrocarotenoids and contrast sensitivity there. And then uh, you know, the information presented here from researchers is extremely important because we can yeah. take that information and apply it in our practice to our patients so they can benefit from this information. Because if nobody really takes this from the research lab and puts it into the clinic, into our offices, right. we don't really benefit from all this great, wonderful information.
3: Right. Well, what's different, though, about Mark is that he not only is here attending and listening like I am, but he's also a presenter. So tell us about your practice and then tell us a little bit about your presentation.
0: Okay. I, um, I'm in a private practice in uh, with, I do have an associate in Fishers, Indiana and a primary care practice. We do have a special focus on nutrition. So we talk a lot about, um, you know, the, the the benefit and the kind of connection between nutrition and vision and nutrition and eye health. So we've done that for a number of years. We've done macrocotinoid testing, um, did the densitometer testing for a while. We've actually gone now to a skin crotinoid scan that we do. We measure contrast sensitivity, listen to patients in terms of what they notice with their vision, and try to give them good advice about what type of nutritional supplement and certainly diet, diet's first. Right. There's no substitute for a diet. A supplement is not a substitute. It is right. a supplement. So we find many patients are low in their macrocrotinoid levels and their nutrition status is um, less than ideal. <laughs> so we talk about ways to make it better specifically with pictures and information and handouts. And then we also address supplementation commonly. Um, so I am a macu health user. I love the, the triple carotenoid. I think it's got great science behind it and it just works and it's been a good, had a great impact on patient care, patient outcomes, uh, good feedback from patients who've used it and we're yeah. seeing those numbers go up In our contrast sensitivity is improving, we see our skin carotenoid scans increasing and, and good things and and so we're also trying to implement kind of a similar strategy with the use of omega-3, which uh, was what I spoke about, what spoke about here. That's so. what you spoke about here. Right, so another really great nutrient with unique molecules. You know, there's been about 50 years since the, really the excitement began with omega 3s and over 30,000 publications and wow. research on these unique molecules. So <clears throat> we're still learning, there's more to learn, but we want to take some of what's been studied and research has found and again turn it into real world recommendations for patients. So I had the opportunity of speaking on the role of long chain omega 3s. Uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids in ocular health and disease, which is a big topic to cover in 35 minutes.
3: <laughs> he did to a great job, to say though. the
0: least. <laughs> so we talked about dry disease, glaucoma, uh, diabetic retinopathy, and AMD, kind of bringing people up a little bit to the most recent research we have, uh, observational studies, RCTs, and practical applications of how to make this work in your practice.
3: So what you're telling us is that this is an option or it's actually a good option and it makes a difference for our patients with all four of those diseases.
0: It is definitely something that has a place. Nutrition does have a place in all four of those places. Um, I think dry eye disease, um, many people are aware of, and there's a lot of use of various nutritional supplements, omega three, omega six, within the dry disease field. I personally think that you want to start with a really good omega-3, get those levels up, uh, hit that greater than 8% mark on a blood test. So we take a drop of blood and send it on a dried blood spot card to a lab in South Dakota, and within about 10 days, we have a number that tells us whether those body tissue levels of omega-3 are in the right range, which is above 8% to 12. So that's what we're shooting for. Okay. So patients who fall short, who have any of those diseases, we're going to recommend they increase their level of fatty fish, which is great. So the diet again is, um, uh, you know, when I recommend patient eats or ask them if they eat fish, I get a lot of turned up noses and different comments, not of which, you know, too many are, <laughs> are, are really eating that much fish, it seems in Indiana these days. So we do talk a lot about supplementation as well to try to reach the, the goal um, again, I use TG omega-3, and I like it for a reason. It has a balance between EPA and DHA. So there's a lot of talk about ratios.
3: Yes, tell like us.
0: Ratios. Well, where does that information come from? First of all, we don't have head-to-head comparisons between different ratios across these diseases. So, you know, we're kind of going out a little a bit of a limb if we make assumptions right. about that. Right. Um, and we also know that there's no conversion very little conversion, first of all, between things like walnuts and flax seeds. So if you don't get enough long chain omega-3s directly in your diet, you just will likely be low. Right. So secondly, uh, we know because you really, when you get EPA, it doesn't convert to DHA. They, they don't go back and forth much So at all. So you just need plenty of both. And the body then is amazing because it knows what to do. Just give it the ingredients, give it the building blocks, right. put it in your diet, swallow your supplements. Uh usually start with around two grams a day for most patients in a EPA DHA trigerified triglyceride formula. Um, and then we monitor response clinically with blood work uh, and that's the approach I've taken out for a while and it's working well. Um, so we like that product and it seems it's very well tolerated by patients.
3: So I didn't tell you ahead of time. I had this question because I forgot, but here it is. And I know you're awesome at this and you would be a great help to all (laughs) of us. But what does that conversation sound like with a patient? So a patient's there, you know, they need it and, and maybe even carotenoids. So let's talk both. And does it all come out at once? You know, so a patient has AMD. And let's say it's uh, drusen, but nothing that I would call uh, moderate or severe. Okay. And we also know they have diabetes. How are you going to have a conversation with them?
0: So sometimes we find patients have multiple conditions, and there's a lot to talk about.
3: Yeah, I know.
0: (laughs) So you want to be efficient. Right. You don't want to overwhelm. That's challenging sometimes. But I basically point to what we found. So if we find, I show patients photographs, we do a lot of OptiMap. So I can show the patient what I'm finding, describe why it's concerning, talk about how we can, our lifestyle modifications, the choices we make can impact that to prevent it from getting worse or progressing. And then we can talk specifics. So your skin crottling score was 20,000. We like at least twice that. We really like 50,000. That tells me you don't have enough nutrients. So here's the vegetables I think you should start eating more of. Dark leafy green vegetables, spinach, kale, uh, orange bell peppers. Are you doing that? You need to do that.
3: We learned about that, by the way, here this weekend. Uh, orange mm-hmm. bell peppers. Yes,
0: orange bell peppers, the way to go. Um, and then along with that, because we want to make sure those levels of macro pigments are elevated, that that filter that's so important to protect the eye from antioxidant damage yeah. over time and filter blue light, provide all these benefits even to vision, we make sure that's dense, so how can we do that? I have a brochure I usually pull out, and here's an eye with very little pigment, potential for damage over time, and here's an eye that's got nice, dense, restored pigment. This is what we want your eye to look like because you're getting that protection, and what does that mean? That can reduce your risk of losing vision because we know those nutrients are so important. So in, along with the, the macrocrotenoids, we also know omega-3s are quite important, and based on what you've told me about your diet, perhaps, um, and maybe other findings I have, we know diabetic patients, uh, they need omega-3s, the eyes are inflamed, we want to calm that inflammation down. Again, so we have a test we can do with a drop of blood that's kind of like that skin crotinoids test for the macular crotinoids. It tells us whether your body tissue levels are adequate and we can titrate the dose. We would start with maybe three three to four a day, um, so around two grams if you're not eating any fish. And we'll, you know, we can do the baseline test today. Have you come back? We can see how things are looking clinically. We can see how you're responding to things. We can titrate the dose. So we have ways that we can see how you're responding objectively. But our goal here is to reduce the risk of disease, reduce the risk of it coming or progressing to more serious things that impact our ability of our eyes to be comfortable or for us to see clearly. Um, And, you know, we people are living longer now. So we have the future to look to. And the people I think who do the best are those who have the mindset, they're going to start doing this and do it consistently. It's not like I'm going to still bottle this and change my diet for a week or a few weeks. It's got to be a longer term decision for it to really have the impact we want.
3: Right. I love that. And one of the things that we really all have been focusing on more, I think, in our practice is prevention. So we talked about the patient who has a problem, but now you've got a patient that comes in that doesn't have any eye disease to be seen in a photograph, but at the same time is possibly at risk for other reasons. Do you talk about this with everybody or is it just the patients that you see active issues with? Yeah,
0: that's a good question. I mean, it tends to be a lot of people because if you take yeah. a look at your patient base, at least my patient base, between those four diseases we talked about, yep, that's quite a few people, especially the dry eye. If you right. really look with my and you put some dye in the eye and you talk to patients, you'll yeah. find a large percentage of your patients have dry eye. So you're already automatically going to be talking about omega-3s um, in my practice. And then if you have a family history, right. if you complain of glare at night, if you have poor contrast sensitivity, if you have a low-skinned carotenoid scan, yeah. if you have early signs of macro changes, pigmentary migration, these are all things that are going to lead that discussion right into the nutrition realm. So yeah. I do find that many patients uh, who aren't necessarily complaining or mentioning anything as far as the reasons to discuss nutrition, because we gather information that tells us about the status of the patient, it does enable that conversation to flow pretty easily and naturally. And I think patients do appreciate you're addressing something that they're not really hearing from many other providers.
3: I love this. Thank you so much, Mark. I knew you would bring this all back to what do we need to do in the office? And a few tips that he gave us, you heard contrast sensitivity. You heard uh, glare, so complaining mm-hmm. of glare. Complaints of glare. And you're measuring this. So there's a lot of things that we could be doing to find these issues and start a conversation. So
0: absolutely. Yeah, I think that's you know, helping the patients. They're yeah. there in our office. Yeah. We have an opportunity for a limited time to understand yeah. where they are nutritionally as well and then have that conversation and try to do something positive. So patient outcomes, you know, long-term patients are seeing better right. and healthy eyes, better vision. That's our goal.
3: And a lot of the conversation has been around Alzheimer's and, you know, I mean, it has been. what do you think about the fact that we are treating eye disease, but this conference is called brain and ocular nutrition for a reason. What is that all about?
0: Yeah. So there's this connection. So we know that there's a correlation between the amount of pigment in your macula and the amount in the occipital cortex. So as you increase the level through your diet in yeah. the eye. Yep. It's increasing in the brain. Some studies indicating better wow. memory, recollection those things. We know the, the effects of omega three. We just heard this morning about um, Alzheimer's disease and you yeah. know, the importance of DHA. Uh, so I think we have so much more to learn. But I think you can't go wrong with adopting a healthy lifestyle,
3: yeah.
0: with you know plenty of fruits and veggies, and um, you know supplementing with you know your Macu Health and often TG omega three. Those work really well together they complement one another. So, you know, I tell patients, you know, Mac health works best in the presence of healthy fat. This omega-3 is healthy fat.
3: Take ah, them together. Love it. I love it. All right. Lots of good advice. And we appreciate you, Mark. Thanks for spending time with well, us.
0: Thank you very much for the opportunity.
3: Hi everyone. I'm here with Dr. Paul Bernstein. And you know what? I have to immediately say you've got to help me with this all weekend, Dr. Bernstein. And this is really incredible. First of all, you are so famous And it's such a pleasure to have you here. And I know all of our listeners are just going to be thrilled to hear what you're doing these days. So let's say thank you first. And I appreciate you so much, but here's what has been confusing to me. It's not just the carotenoids and, and, and all of the omegas and all of what's going on with that, but also I don't know who to call doctor and professor. And you just told me something about Mr. What's the deal with all this?
2: Okay. So we're not in America here. We're in, we're in England, and I've learned through the years the prestige of various things, and doctor is, very, is a very prestigious title in the United States. Here in England, I'm, I prefer to be called professor. That's a higher rank, and very interestingly, a lot of Americans don't know that mister is a very prestigious rank here. That means you're, if, you're a, if you're in the medical field, that means you're a surgeon. And so many people prefer to be called Mr. rather than doctor.
3: Wow, that is so... I, I should have asked the question ahead of time, like uh, two days ago, but thank you for clearing that up for me. And I, I love little tidbits of information I learn along the way. But what we want to do today is first, I want you to tell everybody more about you because there are some of us that uh, see patients all the time. We know that behind the scenes, there's a lot of research going on and there's a lot of people learning about and and discovering what we need to do to take better care of our patients. But I didn't always know how that happened and who was doing that. So tell us about you and a little bit about how you merge that into practice as well.
2: Certainly. So I'm a professor of ophthalmology at the Moran Eye Center of the University of Utah. And I'm a retina specialist, and I'm clinically trained. I'm a surgeon, and I see patients. And I also run a research laboratory. So I'm a clinician scientist. I do it all. And I've been working in the field of nutritional biochemistry for the eye essentially all of my career, dating back to my, my PhD work on vitamin A metabolism in the eye, through my postdoctoral work starting on carotenoids and continuing on since I've been on the faculty at the Moran Eye Center for 27 years. I've been working on trying to put good basic science behind nutritional recommendations for the eye with a a lot of focus on carotenoids, lutein and zeaxanthin that we all consume in our diet, but, uh, and that are specifically concentrated in the retina of the eye. And that's been a focus of mine is trying to to study nutrients that are targeted to the eye because that nature is trying to tell us something. Absolutely. And I've been continuing on that work and lately I've been expanding into the omega-3 fatty acids, especially what are called very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids as a new generation of supplements for the eye. And I've been working not only with a basic science laboratory, but I do do clinical research on, on all of these compounds I was part of the. I was an investigator for the AREDS2 study, and I'm still in. We're in talks even of what should be the next generation of AREDS3.
3: Right. I love that. So, tell us about what you presented on this weekend.
2: Okay. So I, I have. We all know as eye care professionals the importance of lutein and zeaxanthin and potentially omega-3 fatty acids late in life for age-related macular degeneration, but there's so much more, and really I'm trying to look at the role of nutrition in the eyes across the lifespan, and so I, expand, I, I expanded upon my work uh, on the on elderly by now focusing on what, sh- what should we be doing early in life, and I'm talking really early in life. I'm, we've just completed a study called the ELZIP study, which is looking at lutein and zeaxanthin in pregnancy and whether it should be added into prenatal vitamins. And can it prevent nutritional depletion that's occurring in the mothers during the last trimester of pregnancy when she's passing the nutrients on to her developing child? And can we influence the the nutritional status, specifically carotenoids, in her baby by actually measuring the baby's skin, eyes, and serum right within two weeks of birth? And we have exciting results that it really does change at least the baby's status we will need to go back and look at these babies 4 years from now look at see if they're they see better and if they're smarter we don't know that yet but we'll find out we with the mothers we found that they didn't get quite as depleted as we thought they would be but because this study was co- was conducted during covid the people i could recruit were tended to be hospital employees who tended to be pretty nutritionally aware. Right. So we need to go back and look at a more nutritionally compromised study, but we comp- compromised population. Wow. But we were able to show it was safe that it was uh, that we had very good compliance and that there's a lot of interest in looking at things early in life.
3: Wow. So you sort of mentioned already the clinical significance of this. Anything you would like to add though?
2: Yeah. Well, we're also looking to see if it may be helpful in preventing eye diseases of the newborns. So even retinopathy wow. of prematurity. We have some interesting preclinical data that lutein and zeaxanthin may have an effect in, in some uh, selected animal models of, of oxygen-induced redu- retinopathy. So that's, that's where the carotenoids are going. I also talked about very long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is a nutrient that people are not so familiar with. They are made specifically in the eye from the more common uh, long-chain fatty acids like DHA and EPA that we get from fish oil. But they're made specifically in the eye. If there are deficiencies in an enzyme that makes these, you get a form of dominant Stargardt disease. And we've found that there are low levels in in age-related macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. And with the chemistry department at University of Utah, we figured out how to make these in at least gram quantities now. And we'd love to scale up to kilogram quantities and see if directly supplying these very long chain fatty acids that we don't normally eat in our diet unless you eat retinas for lunch, which most people don't. (laughs) And uh, so unless, but we're looking to see if this could be a new generation supplement. And we have some exciting data that will be coming out soon.
3: Wow. All right. So here's the frustrating part for those of us that hear this. We want to have this access to something like this right away. How long is it going to take? And, and maybe you can't give us real answers, but how long does it typically take from you discovering something is beneficial to us being able to have it for our patients?
2: Um, for it depends. Nutritional supplements sometimes come, can come through a little bit faster, maybe five years. It's if you, wow. if we have to go through getting grants and getting funding and if it comes out that it has to be more like a drug, that's five to 10 years. So it's, it's a long process, yeah. but if we don't, if we don't start now, then it's even longer.
3: That's right. I'm just glad you're, you're in the middle of it. I'm glad you're doing it. Um, it's going to be such an impact on all of our patients and who knows, uh, we don't, any of us want to have issues ourselves, but we don't know that. So what's next?
2: What's next? Well, it's <laughs> we are looking at continuing to do basic science and try to get good and yeah. good, good more solid data to support yeah. this. And I've got a newer clinical study that we have coming up uh, called the Magenta Study, which is called the, which stands for the Moran AMD Genetic yeah. as- Testing Assessment Study, and oh. we are looking at. The role of genetic testing, whether to, whether it's important, as eye care professionals to treat, to test people at risk for macular degeneration, perhaps because they have a family history, right. and see if we can inform them. If we inform them of their risk, will that cause quantifiable changes in their lifestyle, so that that we should to decide whether or not we should be doing testing? Because currently, the American Academy of Ophthalmology says. Do not test patients because there's nothing they're going to do. Well, no one's ever actually answered, never proven that. That's just some experts saying we don't think they do. So I've been able to get funding to do this study to enroll patients and really assess them and try to put good clinical science behind this. And using ways of assessing uh, lifestyle changes, not just doing surveys, but biomarkers, measuring carotenoids in the skin and the eye, and see if people make a change within a year.
3: Wow, that is so incredible. Dr. Paul Bernstein, thank you so much for being here, for sharing the information, and, and, and then talking to me so we can bring it to everyone who wasn't able to be here this weekend.
2: Thank you for having me here. It's been a wonderful meeting.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. April Jasper. I'm here with Dr. Emmanuel Addo, and I'm so excited to be here with him. Thank you for being here to talk to all of our listeners. It's a pleasure having me. <laughs> so we're at the Bond Conference in Cambridge, and I want for you, Dr. Addo, to tell everybody a little bit about yourself and uh, then we'll talk about your presentation.
5: All right. Thanks. Um, like you said, I'm Kofi Kofiado, and I am trained as an optometrist from Ghana and moved to the U.S. for my graduate studies. And so currently with Dr. Bernstein at the Salt Lake City, he practices with the Moran Eye Center. And so that's how the journey has been.
3: Oh, that's wonderful. So what are you currently, well, first let's start with what was your presentation about here this weekend?
5: Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) We talked about the clinical trial I more or less like engaged in which is part of my PhD studies. And so essentially, it's about lutein and zeaxanthin in pregnancy. pregnancy. It's known that during the third trimester of pregnancy, there is a massive transfer from the mothers to their babies to support developmental processes. But this puts mothers at risk of systemic and ocular depletion. And if if you're ever aware with the literature, AMD is more predominant in women than it is in male. And we think that could also be a potential reason for that um, increments in women. That's because the number of children they give birth to potentially deplete their store in the eye. And so we're trying to find out if supplementing mothers with these carotenoids could boost their levels in their systemic, that's their blood and their skin, as well as in their eye tissue.
3: So is this research ongoing? It's not finished? Currently, we are done, but then with any
5: research, it gives room to look at other opportunities, to look at other areas that it can answer yeah. and be of help to humanity. And so, technically, we are done with LZP1, but we're looking forward to LZP2, and okay. that and might be in high-risk pregnancy.
3: Wow, so for imagine now, um, mother has a baby before they reach that last trimester, mm. then what? what's happening to the baby because the baby didn't have that transfer. So is that something you guys are?
5: Yes, so we actually are looking at that because um, with the high risk pregnancy, it's quite challenging because most of these individuals develop like give birth preterm and they miss uh-huh. that essential moment where wow. most of these nutrients, which are crucial for babies, neural and visual development, do not get passed on to them and they have to stay in the um, intensive care for a long period of time and even develop some complications in their yeah. eye, wow. like retinopathy of prematurity, which is the leading blind, leading yeah. cause of preventable blindness. And so we're trying to find a means where we can intervene way earlier and probably see if we can, uh, with the help of these carotenoids, which they take their normal prenatal standard of care nutrients. Right. So addition of these carotenoids to them could potentially help them. So that's what we we hope to achieve with the second study.
3: So what happens next? So you did the first study. You know that it does transfer. That's the critical period of time you know that it could put mothers at risk down the road for AMD. So what happens now? You're gonna move into clinical research to actually try and see if it makes a difference?
5: That's good. And so with this, like with any clinical trial, it's in different phases. Yes. So with this, it's more like a phase two where we're trying to figure out if our hypothesis really, really it's solid. Got and it. thankfully, we've been able to sh- demonstrate that these carotenoids increases um, maternal and infant carotenoid level. Wow. And so the next stage is to find out what kind of dose would be appropriate and does it even have any toxic levels that right. can danger the life of these individuals. And so that's what we're looking forward wow. to achieving. And we're excited about that.
3: Yes, you yeah. should be, Dr. <laughs> Addo. That's amazing. Yeah. You know what? Without you being here to actually show and tell people what this is all about, we wouldn't all know. It would be mm-hmm. years before we get the information. So this is mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. Yeah. Thank you for all you're doing. You're welcome. And thank you for bringing the knowledge to us.
5: You're welcome. My pleasure. And I guess that's what science is. have Being right. able to make what we do known to the community so that they can be well-informed. If there's any intervention, they yeah. can actually be proactive and prevent what needs to be prevented in a timely manner. So yes. um, we are happy with what we're doing, and yes. hopefully we'll be able to get something meaningful out there too. I love it. Thank you. Inform all the people we made with.
3: Yeah, you're welcome. Hi everyone, I'm here at the Bonn Conference with Professor Torbert Rocheford, and he is going to tell us about his presentation today and its clinical relevance to us in the world, honestly, but also in practice. Professor, welcome, we're so glad you're here.
6: Okay, so I, I'm in corn breeding, and I work for a period of time in breeding for higher levels of provitamin A uh, in sub-Saharan Africa where they, you have 250,000 to 500,000 children go blind or die every year from vitamin A deficiencies. Wow. So I worked on that for a good long while, um, and then we, we developed materials, and the organization I worked with was Harvest Plus, and the administrators from Harvest Plus uh, were talking to the Minister of Health or Agriculture, or both in Zambia, and they asked, um, You want us to grow and eat this orange corn. Do you grow and eat it in the USA? And the answer, unfortunately, was no. Oh, wow. So then they were like, you know, is this, why not? Is this second rate? It's not good enough for you. So I was going to grow one acre of corn and give some away to chefs and maybe do a couple educational school lunches. Because if we ate one, 10, 100 pounds, we could say, yes, we eat orange corn in the USA. The only quote-unquote problem was that it tasted really good. And I had Southerners say, this is the best grits I ever had. This is the best cornmeal (laughs) I ever had. So we, long story short, we formed a startup company. But part of that, uh, I came to this meeting because I was thinking about doing something for the USA. The university was encouraging me to get, get this technology out. But I had very small scale ideas, work with some organic farmers and sell some at a farmer's market. Right. Just, just say, okay, yeah, we sell it, we buy it, people eat it, um, just hobby scale. I came to this meeting and learned about macular degeneration. I I was googling carotenoids, and there was this macular carotenoids meeting, and I didn't even know what macular carotenoids were. And the only problem was, is I was going with a group of scientists to like testify to this high-level Chinese committee that was considering what we call biofortification, making crops that people eat more nutritious. Right? You know, they're gonna eat corn in Africa. They're not gonna eat carrots. Um, And carrots don't grow that well in parts of Zambia. Um, So I came back from that, and then the next day I flew here, and I was totally jet-lagged. But if I just came for four hours, it was worth it because of dementia. Uh, yeah. association with carotenoid levels, age-related macular degeneration, cognitive function. This is 2015. Right. So I went back, and my son and I, really, the end of that month, we formed a startup company, we started writing federal grants and we've been very wow. successful. So in the U.S., we have mill products. You can, you can get them on Amazon, and we use the brand Professor Torbert's Orange Corn. It's sort of like Oval Redenbacher. His popcorn, he's from Indiana. He went to (laughs) Purdue. Oh, and Burt's Bees, you know, they have an association. And and it's not like a personal thing that I wanted this, but I, I want the products to sell and the company to succeed. So we have that. And then we're developing orange popcorn, we're developing orange sweet corn. But we think the real big opportunity is with feeding orange corn to poultry. Because it puts yes. lutein and zeaxanthin and some beta cryptoxanthin in the eggs. It's a highly bioavailable medium. Uh, and we produce seven billion eggs a month in the u.s wow so it's a it's a big yeah we can penetrate one percent of that can you imagine what that would be i can't even do the math from the top of my head but it's <laughs> a lot um so so that's that's kind of the transition work that i did for africa the the genes the alleles are being used quite successfully to increase pro vitamin a so i've kind of done that thing and now I'm, I'm doing things in the US. So what was the result of the work in Africa? Well, they've been able to increase uh, provitamin A levels dramatically. Uh, they did an efficacy study in Zambia, which, which I will show a, a video clip from some of that that my older son did when he traveled with me there. And they did show that you could improve uh, serum retinol levels in response to eating provitamin A maize. Um, And then they're working on education delivery and and getting a lot of the breeding's been done and they have the materials now It's delivery Um, Zambia was a target country now. They've expanded to Ethiopia Nigeria Ghana.
3: So I heard uh, earlier today somebody talk about how when you change the color of products That sometimes people are resistant to eating them because they look different and I heard a response from you So what is your suggestion? And it's helpful to us in practice because sometimes we're trying to get patients to understand and do something that's different. So you had a response as to how to get past that barrier. What was your response? Well, it's,
6: it's education, it's education and target the mothers. The mothers very, care very much about their children Yes. and they want what's best for their children. So they will listen. Um, and the men, well, hopefully they'll listen too, but you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're better off targeting, targeting the mothers. Yep. Um, and then with vitamin A deficiency though, it, it's not only um, the mothers because they have children, but pregnant and nursing women are having increased risks of serious effects of vitamin A deficiency. So, so, you know, their subject, and they will benefit from it as well. So you just have to have education. You have to be persistent. But um, in my talk today, uh, I have a slide, and what it, what, what it says is you have these orange grits, and you tell children it tastes good, and they'll eat it, and they'll say, it, hey, this tastes good. I like it, and they do <laughs> like it. Then you tell them it's good for you. Because if you told them it's good for you, eat it, they're not going to want to eat it. Right. You know, it's like, here, spinach, it's good for you, but tastes horrible. You know, let them taste it so, first. So it's education and persistence. And yeah.
3: I love that. And yeah. you know what? We're so used to cheese grits where we're from that if we saw orange grits, we would just think they're cheese grits. We'd eat them anyway.
6: Well, the, and from a dietary nutrition standpoint, You don't have to put a lot of cheese. Like some grits basically are just holding the fat all they have to put tons of cheese into it you really don't have to put cheese in you can put some in and some people just love having some cheese in it but you don't need to have it does have some of its own flavors and that comes from the carotenoids
3: you're you're making us want to make sure we can go out and buy some grits that have these extra uh nutritional value in them right away so when when will we have access to Well, you can
6: go to amazon right now i was actually giving a talk and during the, a while back, and I told people, someone came up to me and said, i sorry for taking my phone out because you said put your phones away. And I ordered my father a bag of orange grits because he loves grits, and it was already on. So you can go to Amazon. I feel what like what are they called? Uh, well, you would write orange grits. It's Professor Torbert's Orange Grits. But all you have to do is write, go to Amazon, orange grits and it'll look for professor Torbert's it'll come up
3: wow and the benefit nutritional benefit you said tell us again one more time
6: so it's higher in lutein and zeaxanthin which is good for eye health uh it, it also has some other carotenoids in it like beta-cryptoxanthin which is just a good antioxidant um so, so that would be the the primary benefit but as we study all carotenoids. Um, we learn about their benefits yes. you know we used to just know about beta carotene now right. we know about lutein and zeaxanthin yeah
3: it's incredible, and you wore your orange shirt today. So well done! I
6: did, I did. But you know, my son who who if you go to Amazon and you look at it, he does all the marketing and all that. We we don't. I don't wear orange when we're doing photo ops because an orange ear doesn't look as orange in front of an orange shirt, but um. in front of a white or a blue does. <laughs> but yeah, my my son and my my son was a Forbes thirty for 30, a young entrepreneur awardee, wow. and then GoDaddy picked up on him and they did a marketing campaign and they redid our website. Wow. So it's, it's been good and I get to work with my son. And when we were starting the company I, at the university, I would introduce him as, uh, this is my son. And after a while he goes, dad, I don't want to be introduced as your son. Oh. I, want to, I want to be introduced as co-founder and CEO.
3: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> As parents, David and I know exactly what you mean. Our kids are probably a little tired of being the kids of the Jaspers. But Professor Torbert, we appreciate you so much. Keep uh, working to come up with new things to uh, make the world better. It is such a wonderful an opportunity to talk to you. Thank
6: you. Well, it was great. Thank you very much.
3: Hi everyone, I'm here with Dr. Marina Green, and we are actually at the research facility in Ireland, and I'm really excited about that because I got to hear you speak at Bonn. It was incredible, and Thank I you. I can't wait for you to tell everybody about the presentation and your research, but I also want you to start by telling them about you, and they're gonna love your accent, by the way. <laughs> Thank you, Claire.
7: Um, well, I'm from Mexico. I'm an a internal medicine doctor, I did internal medicine in uh, mexico and then i tried to pursue a scientific career um stepped away from the clinic to see other alternatives to mainstream um, medicine and that's how i ended up doing a phd in nutrition wow. uh, with professor john nolan here at the nutrition research center ireland so that's why my accent is that mixture between a latino and, a, and an irish, <laughs> an irish. Um, which was a little bit of fun during my presentation. Um, I finished my PhD last year, and currently I am coordinating all health-related research conducted here at the Southeast Technological University in the School of Health Sciences.
3: Wow, that's incredible. So I've, I've heard you talk a little bit about a few different topics, but let's go right to the presentation that Dr. Green did at the, at the and you're a professor as well, so doctor and professor at Bonn. Um, yeah,
7: so, well, I'm not a professor. Sorry, Claire. I'm not a professor. I'm just, a, uh, so I'm, I have uh, two doctors. Um, I'm a medical doctor, an MD and a PhD. Okay. Yeah. Um, my presentation was a little bit of everything with a focus on clinical application from my medical perspective. So I think that was a difference that... Uh, it made a difference from the rest of the presentations which were all right. scientifically based. Mine was within the scope of crothnoids and all the science behind bioavailability, dietary patterns and nutrition, but with the uh, under the perspective of clinical implications and applications. So how can we translate everything that we're doing right. into practice and that actually can help uh, current practice uh, in, in both in clinicians and in patients.
3: So it's going to be a little bit difficult, I think, to take an hour presentation and break it down into just a few minutes. But what can you pull from that to help us today?
7: Yeah, well, I think the the most important aspect uh, to understand about um, the my presentation was definitely we are what we eat. So yep. it, it matters what we eat, but it matters as much how do we eat. So, how are you eating all these noise and these nutrients? It's been shown that we are not eating enough of the nutrients that we actually need, and we eat, we are eating too much of the of the things that we don't need, such as saturated fats and uh, red meats and processed meats, and I'm we're not eating it. enough yeah. of the you know the good stuff, the fruits and the vegetables. Now, you can say, well, um, the message out there is eat your greens, eat your five a day. But it's not just eating them and consuming them. It's how right. we cook them, how we process them. Um, because if you have a, a, the salad, uh, the raw salad with your uh, green leafy vegetables, you're not going to fully absorb them. So it, most of it goes to waste. Now I'm, I'm, sp- I'm, I'm going to be very specific here. I'm talking yes. about crotonoids, luteens something okay. and mises Um, something. Which they do need uh, some processing. To be released from the cellular, uh, the, the cell membrane, which is very tough. They're released from the matrix and then we can absorb them. So if, if even if just by cookti- cooking them, grinding them, anything that we can do to process our, our fruits, our vegetables particularly, would increase the absorption. Okay. Now why does that matter? Because um, we, first of all, we don't take enough of them. And second of all, they are difficult to absorb. They are fat-soluble molecules which means that they need a very uh, intricate process to, to be absorbed. They need a proper m- miseralization process, which means you have to grab these molecules and put them in a micelle, and all of this is done by ga- our gastrointestinal system, our bile and our uh, pancreatic enzymes. Um, so that's a series of steps and processes that need to undergo, um, which w- complicates even yeah. further yeah. if you are not processing all the, the, your food correctly so i think that's, that's that was the first part of my presentation which was key to understand the second one was the dietary patterns are important dietary m- patterns matter so having your salad with uh, olive oil for example instead of a dressing um because processing it because they so that's a very good question if you have um these nutrients with Saturated fats like, um, you know, French fries, the the common thing that you have your burger and it comes with French fries and then you have a little salad. You you think
3: you're being healthy by getting the salad. Exactly.
7: Probably you're not absorbing any of it because um, all the fats from the French fries and the burger and everything are constantly fighting and they will interact with the absorption. So you're better off just enjoying a cheat day and then, or a cheat meal and then at night or the following day, just have. Your, your healthy uh, salad and, and vegetables.
3: Wow. That's a good tip. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's all in science. That's what's amazing about your presentation. Oh yeah, absolutely.
7: Everything is, is completely evidence-based.
3: We've run clinical
7: trials. And not just us as a, as a research center, but there's a lot of teams out there that have, yeah. have done the research, have done loads of work on it. Um, other presentations that we saw by Dr. Antonio, um, Alexis, Alex, yep. Alex, Alex. Um, they did great job in in presenting this data that is already there. Yeah. We we cannot be so. And then there's genetics alterations as well. So you're dealing with your own genetics. You might not have the right enzyme, or you yeah. might not have the right uh, transporter to absorb the nutrients. So all of these factors matter when we are actually choosing uh, what to eat and how to eat it.
3: Yes. And as as an internist, how do you you wanted really for us to understand the science shows us that we are what we eat, and how do we then have that conversation with our patients?
7: Thank you for that question. It's very important because at the end of the day, um, we are the, the the main cause of death worldwide is cardiometabolic diseases, and this is a cluster of conditions that share an underlying metabolic abnormality, which is. Uh, abnormal glucose, abnormal lipids that leads to chronic inflammation and, and oxidative stress. If we can fight that with our own nutrition and we can start, we can prevent that from happening is, is the most important message to, to put out there. So um, anybody that has any condition, uh, an already established condition like diabetes or abnormal uh, lipids or uh, cardiovascular disease, they have an underlying inflammation. Yeah. Um, so probably it's yeah. very, and, and then on top of that you have uh, medicines that will also can interact with the absorption of this. Right. Nutrient.
3: What is an example? Tell so everybody. So all
7: uh, probably um, cholesterol and all the drugs that are trying to lower the lipids uh, in your in your blood might interact with right. fat soluble molecules because that's what they're trying to do to um, counteract their effect. Uh, of the fat of the bad fats so saturated fats we're talking about um so if we can have a better nutrition with better nutrients and nutrients that have shown um antioxidant anti-inflammatory capacity is is something that we should uh, put out there for for our patients
3: how so i do you have i guess the the question everyone's going to have i know i know where they're going with listening (laughs) So what do you use? What resources do you use to teach them the right uh, things to eat? And then that's question one. The second question is, we can't tell them not to take their statins. Obviously, they they need their medicine. So if they're taking supplements or if they're trying to eat right, what is the best time? Is there a time or a day? I mean, a time of day they should take the statins?
7: Yeah, well, th- that's and that's, that's just whatever. one example, right? Yeah, true. Well, I'm I'm gonna start asking asking your first question. Um, unfortunately, sometimes and certain people, the, the patients that I've described, we cannot have all all the nutrients that we need. Yeah, and and that's when we, as clinicians, should t- consider supplementation. Okay. Now, nowadays, supplementation is uh, regulated. It has to have, you know, a, a certificate of properly being sourced and uh, to to state what they're to to right. contain what they're really stating. That's very important. That that you are, that you trust your supplements first of all, and then that that supplementing is important. It's not jo- is it's not not um, you know an alternative uh, in the, in indication or an alternative prescription to mainstream medicine right I think is an addition to their satin it's an addition to everything that mainstream medicine is doing yes. that will help and enhance uh, the, 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 their health so yeah I, I would definitely suggest supplementing in this particular population okay. where you don't have enough nutrients or you don't absorb them or you might have genetic abnormalities or an underlying inflammation or an inflammatory a chronic inflammatory response um, because we, we're simply not getting enough of them. Right. You know? And then your second question about when and how um, that's a good question because, again, they're so complicated that they will yeah. always try, they, they're always interacting with other foods. Um, as long as you're not having a, a, a meal rich in fiber, for example, um, breakfast. a lot of. Bre- <laughs> breakfast, you know, your cereal. Oatmeal? Um, or, or a lot of fruit that has that's high in fiber okay so we re- generally suggest to have them with your biggest meal your, your supplements your meal. yeah your supplements okay. so that they can absorb better as long as you're not having a high fat meal right with, you know your french fries <laughs> and your burger More we have a, to
3: assume people are eating well at least a few times a week uh, yes exactly <laughs> That is such good information. So Thank what you would have. you say is your takeaway message? We kind of talked about eating right. Is there anything we left out that was the takeaway?
7: No, I think it's it's eating right but it's also knowing how to eat right. So processing your foods, processing, cooking. There's a there's um misinformation out there that if you cook your vegetables, you're actually killing the nutrients. That's not true for carotenoids. We we have we actually have to process the vegetables to break the walls and and allow for the release of these nutrients into into our, wow. into our gastrointestinal tract and then so that we can absorb them. So yes, um, higher intake of fruits and vegetables and processing your vegetables and understanding understanding that there is is a, it's a more multifactorial. Uh, Situation It's not just that you're not eating enough, it's that you're not eating enough and you're not absorbing them and you might have some inflammation and some genetic uh, problem with your enzymes. So all of that will lead to the fact that you might not have enough and you are in, in this population where you have to supplement and it's actually beneficial for you to supplement.
3: Thank you, Dr. Green. Thank you, Claire. This is so helpful and I can't tell you enough how much uh, I know our listeners are going to appreciate the information and thank you for all the research you do here. It's incredible. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you.
4: Before Neural Lenses, I always had eye strain, eye dryness, eye fatigue, moderate to severe headaches.
3: I had to take prescription medication.
4: It was to the point where my kids, they'd want me to sit down and color or read them books
2: and I couldn't. I couldn't do nothing.
4: I got my neuro lenses. My headache went away. I wasn't taking Tylenol anymore. Can't explain it, but it worked.
6: I would pay double for my neuro lenses because I can't go a day without them.
0: Welcome to Opt In with April Jasper. Dr. Jasper and her guests discuss hot topics, practice management tips, patient care moments, and vendor vignettes in this weekly podcast.
6: Catch it simulcast on YouTube, too.